Welcome to the Untribal Podcast, the show that gives you news content by regular people for regular people. Today we're talking about the conflict in Gaza. There are no words um, for what's going on in the Middle East just now. I can't even imagine what it would feel like to have uh, been suffering first loss at the moment, knowing someone in that situation. It really is horrifying. And as I said, there's no true words to capture um, how how bad it really is over there. Uh, but what I can imagine, what I can find words for, is how Britain reacts. You know, what's our what's our foreign policy? What's our you know what is a ceasefire? What does that mean? What are we calling for here? And um, here to discuss that with me today is a fellow commentator on Scottish politics, Dean Thompson. How are you doing today, Dean? You all right? I'm very very good. Thanks for having me. No worries at all. Let, tell us a bit about your story, Dean, just before we before we dis- uh, start discussions. Sure. Well, uh, I write for Think Scotland, and I also do a substack. In terms of my own background, born in Glasgow, Stirling University for my undergrad, master's at Glasgow University. After that, I went off and I was a lecturer lecturer in China uh, with Shandong Agricultural University for many years, and I came back to the UK. During the time I was away in China, it was a I managed to avoid and escape the entire Brexit referendum. <laughs> I was not in country for Lucky that. you. <laughs> Lucky me. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, uh, in, term, in terms of that's my professional background, the kind of things I would lecture in, uh, would be Anglo-American society and culture. So, which is why my particular areas of fascination writing for Think Scotland and with the Substacker, culture, nationalism, the intersection of all political systems, literature, all of these kind of things. What makes a people a people, who we are, how we think, and concepts of sovereignty, which often radically differ in ways that people don't really think about. And on a personal, and that explains why I write quite a bit, I suppose, about the Israel-Palestine issue. It, it, there's a lot of overlaps with my area of um, academic interest and on a personal level it, although I'm a secularist and um, I'm an atheist um, I always define atheism as not a belief that God does not exist I simply don't feel the need for the assumption <laughs> um, I do have personal connections with um, Ju- Judaism while ex- an ex-boyfriend that I'm still friends with now for many many years I was with him he's practicing Jew and through him I spent many many years uh, basically involved in the Jewish community interfaith relationships often involve a personal journey <laughs> to, which you don't always expect and that leads to areas of it, cultural awareness respect for Jewish values understanding of history and challenges there's a very particular particular personal dynamic there uh, that emerges and this is perhaps part of why I ended up being elected president of the Jewish Students Association. Um, I always think of there's the old there's an old movie that uh, um, I think it was the 1940s or 50s, and the 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 character in the movie is an, a writer, and he's not Jewish, but he decides to find out what anti-Semitism is like for an article that he's going to write. And so he goes on a journey to this cultural elite's 
places in New York and Jersey and all of that. And he says to everyone, I'm Jewish, just to see if they think he's Jewish, what the reaction is. And he, lo and behold, suddenly he experiences and sees it all in a way which he'd never seen before. And although, as I say, I'm a secularist and an atheist, I've been so closely culturally connected through friends, relationships, what I write about and um, roles I played, I suppose, that I'm about as Jewish as I need to be for certain people to give me tremendous amounts of anti-Semitic abuse. And so, yeah, that's a bit of my own personal backstory. Yeah, sure. I, I, what, how do you define anti-Semitism, Dean? Because obviously this is a term that's been thrown about a lot recently. Mm. Um, some people have issue with it being conflated with anti-Zionism. Mm. Tell us a little bit about what you think the definition of anti-Semitism is and what it means to you and your personal experiences. The broad definition that most people would agree with is anti-Semitism would be an irrational fear or hatred of Jewish people, Jewish culture, or anything approximate towards Judaism and Jewishness. You see the traditional tropes would be blood liable, or the Jews bring their suffering onto themselves, you know, the international conspiracy, this homogeneous population that all thinks alike. In modern days, in modern times, with the rise of certain post-Foucault, post-Derrida, post-Crenshaw political philosophies that have become, unfortunately, very popular on the the, the left. You also see this conflation of Jews or white, which is of course not true. And it's a weird racism in of itself. So therefore victimize there are victimizers, never victims. It's very strange. But it's an irrational fear of hatred of Jude Jews and Judaism and Jewish culture and the role Jews play as a minority. And Zionism more controversial. I would dis can describe Zionism as the a belief in the right of Jewish people to have self-determination in their own homeland, uh, which is Judea, uh, or Israel as it is today. And in that sense, I see it as a perfectly, historic, in a historical context, a normal democratic pursuit. And it has always been historically a democratic um, project, it, not a colonialist one, not a settler one. So in that respect, and this is where I differ probably with some, I do see a lot of anti-Zionism is basically a cover for anti-Semitism these days. Now, others would disagree with that, saying you can criticise Israel without being anti-Semitic. I agree. But if Zionism is the pursuit of Jewish people to have self-determinational rights in their own homeland, then opposing that does raise questions for me about why single out the Jews and why the only Jewish state would be denied that perfectly normal pursuit. Because we wouldn't seek to deny it to Kurds. I've always been a supporter of Kurdish rights and potentially even a Kurdish statehood. So why why single out? So that's my initial thoughts on that. Mm. I mean, supporter, I, you know, people might point out that Palestinians might have a bit of a grudge when you talk about the uh, the Jewish homeland. Uh, because they see Palestine, their country, uh, as occupation of mm. that part of the world. Mm. How, how do you, how do you see Palestinians in, in that in that part of the world? Do you, do you think they need to learn to to live to to coexist without violence, or do you think there is a precedence and right to that 
certain uh, part of lands, for example? I would say there. I've always been a supporter of a two-state solution, always supported a Palestinian state. I've always thought the occupation after 67 was a bad idea and opposed the settlement. So I think there's perf- plenty of right on the Palestinian side. Although if to dial this back a little bit, we should talk about a little bit of the history because when we talk about yeah. Palestinian state, Palestinian statehood, we're, there's a real difference between perception and reality with this conflict. And we see a lot of people who are very critical of Israel in the West, very pro-Palestine. They, they talk about colonial Israel as the colonialist state, the apartheid state. You even hear talk of the genocide, genocidal project. And it's not really accurate at all. And I would say the history pre-1991 with Oslo 1, before Oslo 1, what were the real contextualization is, it's Israel wanting a two-state solution and the Palestinian and Arab leadership that wanted a one-state solution, no Israel. And that's a, that's pre-1991. And that's a very different scenario. And when we when we start considering what it what Palestine, the pursuit of statehood, it's a, it's really for the most part rather tragically a story where all too often Palestinians have been let down by their own leadership, and leadership continually choose a chant from the river to the sea over a state of their own, and there's not all that's a really severe problem, and it's a recurring one in the conflict. Hmm. Yeah, I think we have a you know, I mean, there's been five times since. <laughs> the formation of Israel where Palestine has turned down a two-state solution. I, I, yeah, think I'm right. I think I'm right in saying that. I've found, yeah. So you have this real, you know, you have this real friction here, which I can totally mm. understand because if you think of, if it was Scotland, for example, and then all of a sudden you've got an influx of people from a different country that have come in and settled and mm. they're occupying all resources. Like, for example, if they were to to use up our oil for, for other means and, and you know, Scottish mm. people that were lived there previously weren't seeing any of the benefits of it. <laughs> a lot mm. of nas- a lot of nationalists will be shouting at their phone, this is what's happening right now with England. But I, I'm talking about a, like the, a proper comparable, you know, situation here where you know there's tension and there's there's violence and there's no demo- there's no like real democracy between the two mm. peoples, yeah. if you like. You well, can understand I- why there is such a feeling of injustice mm. in amongst the Arab community. Well. I, there, you raise a number of points, so I'll, I'll come, come into it, because I think this is part of the, the framing problem that uh, people miss, uh, at least from where I'm seeing things from. Sure. History, I would argue, shows that Israel and the group that would become Israel um, back 1880s, 1860s forward. Let's break it down into two parts because we talk about settlers arriving in Palestine. Yes, right? sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. So you've got the first Aliyah, the first returning. That's late 19th century, um, largely from Eastern Europe. This is not a story of a political Zionist attempt to create a Jewish state. Before 1897, with uh, Theodor Herzl, you don't have political organized project to for self-determination and what would become Israel. It doesn't exist. So what's this is a comparison to like if we think about it, um the Jews that are returning, 1880s, 1890s, they're coming from Poland, Lithuania, 
the pogroms in tr tremendously anti-Semitic Tsarist Russia. These are not people who are European-style colonists. It's not like the British going to India, the Dutch in Indonesia, or the French in Algeria. They're not Europeans going there, settling as a colonial occupier, and the, the, the natives will work for them, and they, they put the flag down for Britain or France or Spain or any of the imperial European powers. These are people who are, are bringing hoes and spades and shovels. Um, they're, it's more comparable to... 16th, 17th century pilgrims fleeing England to escape religious persecution, or Italians leaving Italy to go to America, or the many, many more numbers of Jewish people who left Europe to go to America rather than Palestine. These are sort of, it's the refugees um, seeking to settle in the historical homeland of the Jewish people. And they're fleeing oppression. So in this respect, we're not really talking about, because if we're going to say this is a colonial project in the first Alea, the first returning late 19th century, you have to be able to say, well, uh, how do I put it? Who are they? Who were they the tools of? They're not going there and putting down the flag for Poland or Russia. You know, that's not what they were doing. So we we can sort of dismiss that sort of framing, I suppose. Um and if you fast forward then, okay, hold on a minute, Dean, what about the second Ilya? You're talking, uh, what would it be, 1904 to 1914, the second returning. Now there is, now there is a Zionist political idea and organisation. Again, I think this is probably even more a story is with the first um, large movement of people. Uh, I remember Benny Morris, the historian, uh, once wrote, quote, the, the Russian pogroms of the 1903-1906 were a major precipitant of the second wave of returning to what would become Israel-Palestine. And more people went to America, but these people were socialists. They were seeking to build a socialist Israel, you know, and they were fleeing persecution. Again, there's not a lot of evidence of a European colonial settler sort of situation. And in this particular period, the, the then Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, um, Kamil al-Husseini, talked about compromise between the, the Ashkenazi Jews who were already there, the many, many hundreds of thousands of Jews from the Muslim world who were at the same time moving within the Ottoman Empire, moving into Palestine. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, he was talking about compromise. What we see is a wave around the same waves of anti-Semitic writings, because unfortunately, Kamil al-Husseini dies in 1921, and his brother sadly succeeds him as Grand Mufti, and his brother is nowhere near as pleasant or as helpful in the history. And you see writers like Najib al-Zuri in 1905 publishes a pretty horrific screed saying there's a Jewish plot, what was it? Um, so the Jews want to construct uh, an a Jewish state from um, the Suez through to Mount Her Hermon, and it's just not true. It was never true. And you see, and, and the subsequent Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, who uh, succeeds um, his brother in twenty after twenty one, Al Husseini, the 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 second. <laughs> uh, 
he originally in 1920 was criticizing Britain and saying, well, hold on, pa Palestine? This is an invention of the British and the Zionists. What we are, we were a part of the Ottoman Empire. This was southern Syria. This was southern Syria. We want to be part of Syria. So he supported the 1920 um, Hashemite attempt to establish a Syrian Hashemite kingdom, going all the way down to just south of what would be Tel Aviv today. And it was only after the French put that down as a real colonial force in the Middle East that he suddenly then returns to Jerusalem, succeeds his brother as Grand Mufti, and pivots to nationalism locally and starts talking. Then you start saying, well, well, if one state will be a Palestine state and there'll be no Jews. So there's a, when we talk about Israel is settler, the Jews came to set as colonists and settlers. It's not really the accurate picture. And we can also point out, I suppose it'd be pertinent to point out, we know that the Jewish people in the first and second delay of moving in, so late 19th century through to 1914, just before the First World War. They weren't, it's not a story of Palestinians being evicted from their land by Jewish people. Uh, I remember reading uh, King Abdullah of Jordan, who died in 1951. He wrote a very interesting memoir. And in the memoir, he kind of gives the game away about the myth creation around this, because he wrote, um, quote, the Arabs are as prodigal in selling their land as they are and weeping about it. That was King Abdullah of Jordan. And what he was acknowledging is the story prior to 1948 was this area of Palestine was a geographical place. It was not a state, there was not a Palestinian state that ever existed there. It was a, a provinces arranged, broken up in different areas and within the Ottoman Empire. And yeah, it was, was Ottoman Empire. Yeah. Uh, a pan yeah, yeah, and there was a pan-Arab perception, um, of course. And this was largely depopulated, and the land was owned by absentee landlords. And the Jewish people that came in, the refugees, they bought the land legally. In fact, there was a really interesting um, bit in um, Joan Peters, um, who she wrote um, Time Immemorial, and she pointed out that, she, that Musa Alami, who was a Palestinian leader in '48, said, quote, the people are in need of a myth to fulfill the consciousness and imagination because they're constructing Palestine now. They're, they're constructing this idea of Palestinian nationalism in this period in response to the Jewish immigration, meeting with the native Jewish populations already there. And then part of the myth is this idea that displacement, still taking Jews coming in and taking resources, that they're Euro colonial European settlers, none of which I would argue is really true. And Benny Morris in Righteous Victims uh, on page 111 talks about um, the quote, the quantity of land offered for sale to the Jewish uh, immigrants arriving was far in excess of the Jewish ability to purchase it. Because this is largely, you're thinking Tel Aviv, 1909 is created and is founded by Jewish people. And the areas which would be the UN part of what the UN partition suggested would be an Israeli state was all majority Jewish population uh, and I, the land was purchased generally in the first and second delays from absentee landlords within the Ottoman Empire people living in Damascus and owning great swathes of barren land they didn't really do anything with so there's a lot. it's a lot more complex than some of the myth making that 
Yeah, people sure. Have told, people have told ourselves. Of course, and then you see uh, phrases like uh, colonialism and apartheid mm. commonly used online. Mm. I'm mm. wondering, however, if you look at the situation at face value, certainly in the last 50 years, mm. where the the flag of that area uh, represents the Star of David, mm. um, Palestinians are afforded a very small piece of land uh, for the amount of people that's there. There's been a lot of civilians killed over the past few decades. Can you? Is there any merit of using words like colonial and apartheid in in the backdrop of those uh, circumstances? For for apartheid to be true, for Israel to be an apartheid state, I don't think is in any way up because it's not what the story tells us. Israel, at no point in its history, has ever wanted to occupy most Israelis. Of course, you get the right-wing lunatics in the Knesset, of course. You, you know, we do have the populist problem of Netanyahu, I accept. He's certainly not been interested um, since 2010 onwards, but we can come to that a bit later. Um, Israel was founded as and sees itself as a democratic Jewish state. For it to be democratic, you don't you cannot rule over a majority population as a minority. That is why when you talk about 1937 and the Peel Commission offer to the Palestinians, the Israelis the, what would become Israel, the Israelis accepted it, even though it was 80% like in 1947 UN partition, 80% of it going to the Palestinians, uh, there was no desire to be a minority ruling over a majority because that's not what Israel sees itself as or is attempting to be as a country. I do accept that since 1967, the, uh, the seeds of victory in the Seven Day War gave its Israel the seeds of its own severe problems and um, in the international stage. But, uh, you know, again, I'd point out, 1967, after the, the, the Seven-Day War, Israel found itself in control of the West Bank, which had been part of Jordan, and Gaza, which had been part of Egypt. Interesting aside, one of, the, I think, the real Nakba, the real catastrophe for the Palestinian people is not the myth around displacement in the 1920s or 30s and 40s. It's that the Jordanians and the Egyptians did not lift a finger to lay the foundations of a Palestinian state when they controlled the Palestinian territories. They, that's, the I think, the real catastrophe for Palestinian statehood. And part of this in 67, you see the feedback. Again, the problem, the, late, the latent desire for a one-state solution, river to the sea, rather than a Palestinian state, is reflected in 67, where the Israelis find themselves in control of this not wanting it, and Israel makes two offers. One, Jordan, have the West Bank back. <laughs> Egypt, take Gaza back. We really don't want it. Minus some territorial changes, because the 67 borders had Israel nine miles wide at the centre. We're, we're not going back to the 67 borders because Israel's not defensible. So this idea of the 67 borders is just a waste of time at this point. It's never going to happen. Um, but 
Jordan says no. Egypt says no. You you can't. We attacked you. You you took it. You own it. You got it. So Israel then says, okay, what about we set up a Palestinian state and the Arab countries help them establish a state? And you get the disaster, the infamous three no's. Israel accepts in 67 the UN Resolution 242 and the Arab League meets in Khartoum in Sudan and they issue the three infamous no's. No peace with Israel, no recognition of Israel, no negotiation with Israel. So Israel's now stuck with an occupation it doesn't want. And that sort of begins to the unfolding of the occupation. And Israel's got, is kind of stuck with with an occupation it didn't want because it did not, it did not start the 67 war. The 67 war was triggered by, with Soviet instigation, the attack on Israel by Arab, the Arab League that, like in 48, was not interested in any two-state solution they chose the chant river to the sea, which literally means Jordan to the, the middle, the Mediterranean coast. One Palestine, it's Arab and there are no Jews in it. That's literally what that means. It's a sort of, if you want to talk about a genocidal project, that's pretty much what it is. And of course, we shouldn't be surprised because the Grand Mufti of Jer Jerusalem during the, the late 20s, the 30s and the 40s, of course, he spent the Second World War in Berlin. With Hitler, because he'd been involved with Gilani, the fascist in Baghdad, they'd tried to launch a coup to get the to, in Baghdad. The British put it down in '41, and by the time the British did, they'd managed to the Gilani and the Grand Mufti had managed to murder 200 Jews of Iraq, who were as Iraqi as you could ever have been. They'd always been living there since the days of Nebuchadnezzar and the exile <laughs> to to to, to Babylon. And of course, this is part of the problem. I mean, you do make a good point. The state, Palestinian state that's an offer today, it is smaller than the offer of 1947. In 1947, it was 80% of what we'd call the mandate Palestine. It's not that today. I suppose what I'd say is you don't reward terrorism with ever larger offers of territory. That's the yeah. first part. You just can't behave like that. And also the re demographic realities evolve on the ground. And people who say the roadblock to a Palestinian state is Israel does not, it, you know, Claire Short used to always say this back in the early 2000s. I'm old enough to remember that. And she used to say, oh, Israel wants the land, not the people. That's never been true. Israel was happy to take 20% of what was mandate Palestine in 37 and 47. They really don't want to be a minority ruling over a majority at all. So do you think on that, on, on that specific note, do you think that the, the ruling class in Israel has let down the peace negotiations in, in, in that territory? Do you think that the ruling class have some, you know, you know, apologies for using such graphic language, but do you think they have some blood on their hands in terms of how this has played out? Oh, I I would happily throw Netanyahu under the bus at this point. Because uh, th this is the real tragedy of 2000, 2001, um, because it radicalises Israeli politics. Because remember, Israel 48 to 20, er, 2008, it's pretty, it's still, 
it's the Israel of the Labour Party of Israel. It's pretty socialist, and you know, and it and it then twenty ten onwards we see this very right wing tilt in Israeli politics, which is quite historically unusual. And there's um, netting the seeds of Netanyahu and Sharon, um, goes back to the two thousand and Arafat walking away from the peace offer. I remember. Prince Bandar of Saudi Arabia tells Yasser Arafat and the Palestinian Liberation Organization leadership, accept the offer <laughs> from, from um, who was it, Ehud Barak, was it? Let me check one out. Uh, yeah, it was Ehud Barak. And he says to Yasser Arafat um, pretty explicitly, if you don't accept this offer, and this is 2000, 2001, you will never get another a better offer Instead, you'll get Sharon, General Ariel Sharon. Uh, and sure enough, <laughs> Prince Bandar was right, because Israel at this point, this was by now the fourth rejection. And Israel starts respond. And instead of the peace acceptance in 2000, Israel gets the second intifada with this bus, school buses blowing up. And Israel's response, the, you know, fear leads to a desire for security over... Um, more liberal considerations, you start seeing the fence, you start seeing the border walls, you start seeing, we'll just, well, Sharon says, right, we'll just remove the troops from Gaza, we'll remove the settlers from Gaza, and we'll just build a wall. We'll just contain the problem. And instead, we'll just start focusing on normalizing with Arab governments. And we'll just leave the Palestinians to themselves. There's a sort of giving up on this idea. And as Sharon dies, and He's basically, then you get the Netanyahu period. And Netanyahu is a very perfidious populist because he, he Netanyahu, Mr. Security in Israel, is very tied up in Hamas, his emergence, because he's always played this game where he wants normalize, he's always thought we can normalize with the Arab world, which is pretty much now wanting a two state solution. They're now there. They weren't in 67, they are now. It's the Palestinian leadership, sadly, that are still not. But Israeli politics has got more right-wing because of the 2000 rejection and then the Intifada that followed it. And then Yahoo says, we can have normalization with the Arab world and we can just ignore the Palestinian question. And that's been his... And how does he achieve that? Well, Hamas is... We'll leave Hamas in Kirov, Gaza. We'll have a pretty weak... Palestinian National Authority under a pretty corrupt Mahmoud Abbas, which in terms of street currencies not ha does not have much authority on the streets of Ramallah with the Palestinians. They don't take the Palestinian National Authority really seriously anymore. And that's again Netanyahu. He's weak Palestinian National Authority, which is recognised. Hamas, which is a one-state solution, no Israel, we're going to kill every Jew, river to the sea, circa 1940s rhetoric and he's saying oh we don't have anyone to negotiate with oh well and that's been Netanyahu's strategy mm. and it's bit everyone in the backside and the result of that has been the worst number of Jewish people dead since the end of the Holocaust and I hold Sharon, uh, not Sharon, well Sharon yes but Netanyahu particularly responsible for completely ignoring the peace process because he's not been interested in it. And he's been quite happy to say, well, there's no partner for peace. What can we do? Just 
appeal to the far right in the Knesset, which is a tiny minority of politicians, don't forget. Most Israelis do not vote for the, some of these right-wing nutters. And, they, and Netanyahu says, oh, well, they have my majority in the Knesset, which is a very proportional representation parliament. And he says, shrug of the shoulders, we'll just have to let the settlements keep expanding on the West Bank. And that's the game Netanyahu has been playing, which is perfidious. And I enjoy seeing Israeli opinion polls showing that once this particular disastrous moment is over, I think Netanyahu is done as well. And I'm yeah. looking forward to that. I think um, playing into this dynamic as well, of course, is the the, the sort of the, the right wing of uh, politics in Israel are seen as more trustworthy in terms of security. And dealing with external threats, so in the in the sort of immediate, you know, potential for threat and and violence that's that the Hamas group poses in uh, Gaza, for example, you know, they're voting for these politicians because they think they're better equipped to deal with that. You know, the the left of Israel's politics are too compassionate. They're not, you know, they're not strong enough in terms of the actions that they take. So they they're opting for more right wing governments, despite the fact that as you've you know, explained really well that the the general values of Israeli politics are are compassionate and they're and they're very left wing and and they're very you know yeah. you know encapsulated of of so, social democracy. So it's it's an yeah. interesting dynamic. I mean, it, and yeah, because the two thousand two thousand one peace agreement was about Ehud Barak, and the two thousand and eight offer was Ehud Omar, and that discredited the centre-left two-state solution, we can do this. Because um, I remember 2008, the Echid Umar, he offers, um, even surprisingly to everyone, he offered even more than Barak did in 2000. He offered, he even threw an extra land as a sweetener. And Mahmoud Abbas follows Arafat's example and says no. And it just creates the perception that it's, a Palestinian leadership choosing a chant, river to the sea, one state solution, which is never going to happen, versus a, an obtainable state for their people. And that roadblock is not something that Israel is particularly able to resolve, but it's certainly something Israel, Israeli politics under Netanyahu has made worse, because they're Netanyahu and the far right of Israeli politics, they're quite happy to say, oh, we've tried. All the Labour and the Social Democrats, they've tried. Look, the Palestinians never wanted it. And look, we've got no one to talk to anyway. Oh, well, we'll just build the wall higher. And the, that, yeah, so there, it's a, I'm hoping that Mr. Security Netanyahu has been seen for what he is. And of course, the occupation. Why, why do people like me who are very, I'll be honest, I'm pretty pro-Israel. Uh, I'm very sympathetic to it at the very least. Why have I always been so critical of the occupation? Because it's a cancer eating away at Israel. The perception of it, Jews lording it over Arabs is a cancerous thing for Israel's reputation. And it's hollowing out the democratic ethos of Israeli society. And it allows for someone like Netanyahu and the further right and his, we saw this manifest with his war against the Israeli Supreme Court and how div he divides, dividing and weakening Israeli civic society, which is another factor why the IDF and the intelligence agencies in Israel's cult 
sleeping with with the Hamas attack in October seventh. It was Israel was so div- internally focused because of Netanyahu, which so the occupation has to end. But it's a dance of death. Israel doesn't know how to extricate itself. Hamas don't want Israel to exist. They don't want any Palestinian state you can offer Hamas. They don't want anything that you can offer them. They want to kill Jews. What does Israel do? <laughs> it's tried removing the settlements from Gaza. It's tried removing the troops from Gaza. It, in response, you had a Hamas murdering their Fatah opponents, throwing them off the rooftops, and then establishing a theocratic dictatorship funded by the Ayatollahs in Iran. So Israel then builds a, a, a wall to keep them out. <laughs> and you just can't extricate yourself from this problem. And yeah, I think I, I, one thing that I was talking about today, my column was, you know, pe- you know, people have talked about the word ceasefire quite a lot, which is great in theory, but mm. in practice, it's difficult because you're not dealing with two diplomatic states here. What you're dealing with is a a, a death cult, yeah. who's who's literally in black and white, and their mantra is to obliterate Israel by by any means. Yeah, mm. and you know whether a ceasefire is able to be achieved is is a hugely contentious question because you're not dealing with people that think rationally like we do. You know, they don't mm. they don't see death in the way we do. They don't practice they don't they don't live life in the way we do. It's it's a completely different psychology. So it's not as easy as that. Another point is that if you call for a ceasefire and say put the guns down, it also leaves Israel vulnerable as well to further attacks and anything after that ceasefire, if Israel to defend itself is deemed illegitimate in the eyes of international law. On top of that, <laughs> you've got this issue that if you are to put a ceasefire in place now, we're essentially stepping down at the hands of a terrorist attack. That sets a very dangerous president precedent for the security of international order in the future. However, what people are rightly pointing out is surely the way to go about this situation is not in the reckless fashion some some people would argue that the Israeli government has done and we can see that in the death count that we see now I, I, what do you think of Israel's response do you, I, I, I appreciating that you know the, the the very valid question what would you do in that scenario is a very valid question but do you mm-hmm. think there needs to be some level of accountability here where you think why is the death count so high mm-hmm. and and why is there such a, a careless um you know why, why is the manner in which they're going at Hamas as a target so careless in that so many civilians have died as a result? Well, there's a lot to unpack in that question. Um, so right. I've just thrown so much at you there, yeah. but let's do <laughs> so, it. Let's start with the simple, we'll start with the morality and then we'll do go on to the legality. So let's, something you touched on, a thought experiment. Israel throws up its hands says, we will lay down our arms, we will fight no longer. What happens the next day? Well, October 7th tells us every Jew gets murdered in Israel by Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad. I would suspect even some in the PLO probably (laughs) are nowhere near as placid as their public statements. Let's not forget the PLO in 2018 suspended their recognition of Israel. So we've actually went back We've actually we're no longer even at Oslo One in 1991 anymore. With, with in the West Bank in Ramallah, 
Um, although you can portion some blame for Netanyahu, certainly for that happening. So Israel lays down its arms, we get a genocide. Hamas lays down their arms and says, we will fight no longer, you get peace. Now, there, that's a heck of a difference between the two sides. And this touches on when we start thinking about the conflict, people dying. We need to ask ourselves, what do both parties want to achieve? What world are they trying to build? Israel is trying to build a world where they live in peace. They have a two, They don't need to occupy any territories anymore. And you have a two-state solution. It's what they've always wanted for 37, 47, 67, 2000, 2008. The record shows Israel's offered nothing but two-state solutions. And it's not been the, the Israel that's refused that. Um, so we know what, what kind of world Israel's trying to build as a democratic society. Hamas, well, we've seen what they want to build. They want this the same world as the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem when he was sitting in Berlin during the Second World War, or when in 48 he tried to corral the Arab League into finishing Hitler's work and waging its war of extermination on Israel before it was even born in the 1948 war. We know what Hamas wants. One state solution literally from the river to the sea. And I can't... And it, I'm sure we'll come on to it later. It's amazingly bad that we hear so many people in universities in the West chanting that song. But we'll come on to that later. So that's the morality of it. And if it's a ceasefire, um, morality of ceasefire, that smacks of me of this equation. Murder Jewish babies plus hide behind Palestinian babies equals Hamas gets away with it. The morality of that would need to be explained to me before I would accept it. So a ceasefire does not seem reasonable on the morality of it. But in terms of what would happen if, it, if Israel unilaterally did try a ceasefire, the morality of what that means in terms of what Hamas has done and the responsibility and whatnot of any the, the absence of any consequences. And also in terms of motivation. But in terms of the legalities, there's so much talked about here by people who don't know what they're talking about. I could name, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, Monica Lennon, Jim, was it George Galloway? The names just trip off the tongue. You know who they are, the usual suspects, the ceasefire and all of this. Because of proportionality, 1,500 Jews have been murdered, mostly Jews have been murdered in the Kibbutzim. Therefore, Israel's killed 4,000 people in Palestine or whatever. If we believe the Hamas number count, which I do personally don't, but if you suffice, a lot of people have been, civilians have been caught up in Gaza. We can say that for sure. The problem is it's not a numbers game like that. Proportionality under international law is not defensive force measured against the attack you suffer. That, or to put that simply, it's not the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor sink X number of battleships. So we then sink, or America sinks X number of Japan's battleships. This is a bizarre equivalency that's not propor not proportionality under international law at all. Proportionality is in international law the proportionate proportionality measured against the object defensive objective set out. 
And in Israel's case, the offensive objective set out is the destruction of Hamas's capability to wage any kind of war or pose any kind of threat against Israel, which is a morally and legally justifiable defensive objective. So, and if anyone wants to check out where I got that in reading of international law, it was Lord Veridami, Professor KC in the House of Lords, who's very much an expert <laughs> in interpreting it. So that's the first point. The anti-Semitism, I suppose, it manifests itself rather obviously when people call for a ceasefire based on a complete nonsense understanding, misrepresentation of proportionality. Because what they're asking Israel to do is not to defend itself in a way which every other country does and has under international law, which is to single Israel out as the Jew amongst nations. And it's called curious that it's the same figures with the same blind spot, shall we say, when it comes to anti-Semitism, who seem to constantly come out with it. And in terms of, I suppose we also at this point need to talk about the siege of Gaza. Um, we can't talk about what Israel's response without touching on that. Siege warfare is legitimate and legal under international law on one proviso, that the territory under siege is defended. Now, Hamas is defending that territory. It is defended, militarily speaking. Therefore, Israel is, after declaration of war, perfectly entitled to lay siege to that territory. If you want to end the suffering, as I most certainly do in Gaza Strip, Hamas should be, people, everyone should be demanding Hamas disarms. The moment Hamas disarms and releases the hostages is the moment any legal justification disappears for Israel's siege of Gaza. It, the siege is predicated and legal on the basis that it's a hostile territory that is militarily defended and and has launched an attack on Israel. So why would, again, people want to single Israel out and say, because if you think about it, Fallujah uh, and Iraq, during the Iraq war, coalition forces after Al-Qaeda and, and after that Mosul with ISIS, indeed, what happened is these cities, Mosul and Fallujah before it, they're subject to siege warfare by the Iraqis in Mosul's case with ISIS, the coalition forces in the case of Fallujah, 2007. And both times this legal justified siege warfare because you declare to the citizens in advance, you need to leave. This is not an open city. It, it is being defended by hostile forces. We will be attacking. You give them a chance to evacuate if possible. In the case of Gaza City, Hamas have been preventing people leaving, which is a war crime that Hamas is responsible for, despite Israel giving the warnings, same as we did in Iraq, same as Iraq did against ISIS. So why is it fine for the Iraqi government in fighting ISIS to fight siege warfare? You declare the warning to the city, you need to leave. This is not an open city. This is going to be subject to siege warfare, in effect. But... Israel does it against a ISIS variety, heads chopping, throat slitting organization. But oh no, the, the Jews need to have a ceasefire. <laughs> yeah. That is, hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, there's a, I think this highlights a, a very real problem with international law is that there's so much double standards 
that the it's, it's, it's hard it's it's hard to implement universally just for balance there you named quite a few thinkers that you said didn't you know didn't have, didn't have a clue to use your words in terms of foreign you know international law for balance you know i i've seen our own foreign secretary on the, the laura kunzberg show and he did not have a clue what international law was based on his what True. he was saying just for <laughs> just for a balance um, I, I and and also taken into account you talked about proportionality and i think this is where it gets tricky because in terms of proportionality and according to international law the response needs to be targeted mm-hmm. and this is where the contentiousness comes in because people are stacking up the amount of civilians that have died and saying how can this be targeted you know it's a, it's a bit like when we um mm. when britain were sending in airstrikes into syria and mm. they were saying look we're we're attacking just um you know places where chemical weaponry is being developed mm. that's that's mm. all we're targeting uh under international law you know by the letter we're fine we've done mm. it but as a result so many civilians were killed so this is this is where the sort of contentiousness goes in and with that if the if the if the measure with which a targeted um response was miscalculated then it becomes a debate of whether it is a proportional response or whether they are committing war crimes themselves because mm. if israel were to commit war crimes themselves and this is under international law they would cease their right to sovereignty if, mm. you know and, and this is where it gets difficult i talked a little bit about this in the article as well because we've moved on from a place where in the aftermath of uh, world war ii we, uh, and we said to people look no we need to protect borders of nations they have an absolute right to these borders. And if anyone comes over those borders, they have a right to defend themselves and too right. But the language has changed a lot. And we're now talking about the rights of individuals rather than the rights of states to say, because mm-hmm. there's been so many instances where countries have defied that uh, law in, in the UN Charter, that it's become a completely different conversation. So, for example, when we went to Kosovo, we said, you know, it, you know, our intervention there wasn't in the eyes of international law, but we said our overriding ethical feeling on this is that we need to act anyway, and, and because of that, it was deemed legitimate. And this idea of legitimacy tangles the whole debate on what is actually legal in terms of international, um, you know, military interventions. So there, it, it then becomes a question, you know, you've talked about how it is proportional, uh, the response, but... People might respond to that saying, look at the amount of civilians that have died. Was it really targeted? I'll, I'll, that's a fair point. I'll deal with that directly then. We need to... Um, Israel is in a position where, say, perfect example, the hospital that was that had the car park of the hospital blow up. We need to remove the disinformation. Um, what do we know? Um, I mean, that's know... a problem. That's a problem in itself. To be fair, what what yeah. what what do we actually know that's coming out there? You know, we know how big well, a thing propaganda to, is. According to American, British, French, and Canadian uh, intelligence agencies and Israel, the car park was hit by a failed, a misfired rocket uh, uh, from Palestinian Islamic Jihad. We think, and the weapon, the, the the reason the car park, not the hospital, the car park was blown up, was because Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad used that to store weapons. And we know under hospitals, in the vicinities of schools, 
Hamas use their own population as human shields. I mean, this you said it yourself at the opening. This is a death cult. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> they, absolutely. They, they are their responses like this. We welcome Israel attacking our military targets that are positioned in these neighborhoods. We are preventing these people leaving after Israel does its due diligence, warning them that they're going to be hitting that geographical location. And Hamas has got the 4G camera, 4G cameras ready to go as the babies are pulled out from under the rubble. I don't see how this can be laid at the door of responsibility-wise of Israel. Warnings are given, evacuations are requested. They're hitting legitimate military targets. It's not something that Israel can control if Hamas has such a disinterest in the welfare of their own people that they would launch rockets from beside schools and with it and and build you know organize their terrorist operations from inside mosques. Israel under this situation, Israel's well within its rights to attack any milit- legitimate military target. And the human casualties that mount up, I would say, are largely due to appallingly cynical choices made by Hamas. They want as many Palestinians dead as possible so that they can rally Hezbollah and the Arab world to try and get them to once again do a 67 or a 48 and wage war on Israel. Because that's why did Hamas do this now? Because Saudi Arabia and Israel were on the very verge of normalizing. And if that happened, it's game over for the politics of terrorism and jihad and a one-statist Palestinian struggle. At that point, it's two states and every meaningful Arab government in the vicinity is said, saying to the Palestinian leadership, do a deal, you're going to have to live with an Israeli state existing. So Hamas is trying to be a wrecker here in the true sense of the word. And they're tr- go prior to October 7th, the Washington Institute had opinion polling that showed the views on the Arab street around the Middle East. Hamas's Arab perceptions of Hamas were dropping through the floor. Perceptions of Iran, the Iran, not Israel, was the big enemy. And Israel, whilst they think Israel, they don't like Netanyahu, Israel should definitely treat the Palestinians a lot better. There needs to be a Palestinian state, but we, we want to do business and trade with Israel. And that was the mood of normalization and hope and stability. And Hamas saw the writing on the wall, so they went in, murdered 1,500 Jews, and then knowing Israel would have to respond with a total war approach. And hopefully in Hamas's mind, there'll be enough Palestinians dead that they can wreck the peace process and maybe bring in Syria and Hezbollah and northern Lebanon into a, a wider Middle Eastern war. This is what this is about. This is, um, like you say, a death cult. And the morality, the responsibility for the number of Palestinians dead is at the doors of Hamas and Palestinian, uh, uh, the Palestinian, what was it, Uh, Liberation Jihad Organization. Uh, That's, I I fail to see what Israel can humanly do, but they're not already doing. You know, warnings are given. Strikes are targeted at legitimate targets. Hamas stops people evacuating the neighborhoods. It's not, it's not something Jerusalem can control. 
Yeah, and, and and unfortunately, the problem we have with international law is that there's no judge and jury. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's it's literally a case of countries that have the capacity to to intervene with military force deciding whether or not it's it's morally the correct decision to do so. It's it's always been that yeah. case, and I guess at that point, you know, you ask the question: at what at what cost? You know, at what cost in terms of the lives that are lost? Do we pursue? the end of this of this death call as we've called them because i I mean i personally think that the the reason they're doing this is because they want to breed a whole new generation of terrorists you know if if, if, you know the the more mayhem that is caused within gaza right now the the more people in power in gaza are going to be thinking i I feel a sense of injustice here my family's dead you know and they're they're going to want to act accordingly with that terror group so it's very precarious situation of course but then it all leads to that yeah. impossible question at what mm-hmm. cost you know yes. I, I think i think as the as the numbers go up mm-hmm. it be, it becomes a, an, an even more difficult scenario i guess but yeah. um yeah uh, did, did you want to add anything there sorry um, um, no i think that's pretty um accurate mm-hmm. uh, I, in terms of in terms of um the British, because you touched on Britain and the Brit- British government's foreign policy reaction. Yeah, um, I remember was it Britain abstained in that UN vote? Yes, uh-huh. which is just such an. I wasn't. Act. I wasn't too happy with that, you know, because no, I, 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 I think that you know Britain is meant to be a world leader in terms of you know, you know, international security and order and and you know universal human rights and and morals. To abstain is to say. I'm admitting to indecisiveness. That's all it's saying. It's it's not making a stance. It's saying I'd rather not make a call. And it's mm-hmm. very important that we do make a call at this point in time. Yeah. We need leadership on the international stage. Yeah, um, we need to know if if the if His Majesty's government thinks a ceasefire should happen now or not now. We should know that, and they should state it on the record in the United Nations. Yeah, the fact that they won't is either because they refuse to, they lack you know. The sort of what would it be the politics of cowardice, or maybe there's some diplomatic game going on where the Americans will be the no vote and the the British play good cop bad cop. I don't know if there's diplomacy involved in it. I mean, I think you know the very obvious um, answer to that question is us hiding behind America. You know, as as we've done. In a lot of situations, yeah, I, I, I think if we had just stood on our own two feet, um, in a lot of moments over the last twenty years, then you might have seen different things play out. But it's it comes down to the basics of they're the biggest bully in the playground, (laughs) and if you're gonna if you're gonna maintain international order, you're gonna have to get behind one of them because they're gonna be fighting anyway. That this is the sort of understanding in very simple terms. Um, which makes it incredibly difficult. But the lack of leadership and the last lack of decisiveness, I think regardless of what you want to happen, yeah. is very frustrating. Yeah, uh, the, the, the UK government's... Um, its reaction to what's happening has been generally pretty unhelpful anyway um, and deeply, deeply frustrating because... Because you see, uh, the attempt is, we saw was uh, um, Robert Jenrick saying, and I welcome him saying it, but I think it's completely missing the point when he said, uh, any, we'll remove visas from people here who 
or visiting the country and or preaching anti-Semitism or extremist politics. Good, fine, but we're not really dealing with that. This isn't an immigration question. This isn't no. a foreigners coming here. It's an immediate threat to international security. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. It's, it, this is the UK government saying, oh, it's it's the foreigners causing trouble here again. It's not. Uh, it's, so this is a, as Bernard Fox said in an interview, this is a homegrown problem that we're dealing with when you've got young people spilling out of universities, sh shouting from the river to the sea, or when you saw in the Amer in America, in the U California university students marching on the university campus saying, we want a Jewish genocide. This is something in particular in the West that's homegrown, that's causing anti-Semitism. And let's talk. Let's talk about that. Let's finalize on this topic, Dean. How mm -hmm. did you make the? What did you make of the reaction that's been in Britain today? You know, I've seen a lot of uh, a similar pattern to what we've seen over the past ten years, to be honest, mm -hmm. which is hostile, divisive politics that are, you know, only you know exaggerated and uh, on social media. You you know the theory of echo chambers, all the rest of it, mm -hmm. um, and we're seeing it play out again. We're seeing this. You know, you've you've either got a Palestine flag or an Israel flag, and there's no way between. There's no compromise. What 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 have you made of the reaction? And do you think that's playing into the indecisiveness of the leaders in Britain, where they're thinking, "I need to watch my political capital here for the next election that's coming up next year." I'm actually re reasonably pleasantly surprised with the Sakir Starmer's reaction. I'm very, very happy with his reaction. I'll put cards on the table. I'm a member of the Scottish Labour Party. So I'm very, very happy with Sakir Starmer not calling for a ceasefire and saying Israel has a right to defend itself. And he's having to deal with the backlash within Labour over that. But I well, think Anna, I Anna Sowers yeah. says something different, yeah. Yeah, I see Sakir Starmer. He needs to hold the line. Um, it's a test of his leadership. And I see John McTernan, who's a political advisor to, I think it was Tony Blair and the Labour Party in um, Australia as well. He was saying, and I agree with him as well when he said it, that the, the Sakir should be asking Mr. Starmer, where's the Hamas offer for a ceasefire? Answer that one first. Then we can talk about the politics of a ceasefire. And also, whilst you're at it, as, uh, also a ceasefire, explain how Israel is to liberate its hostages. <laughs> how it's, you know, there's a whole bunch of questions that follow. And I'd like to hear a lot of answers about that. But the Conservatives have always been very much more pro-sympathetic to Israel. So I'm not surprised the the Conservative Party has taken the line it's had. I welcome the line it's had against anti-Semitism and Israel's right to defend itself. But what's going what's going on? Why are we seeing people on in London chanting slaughter the Jews, which happened the other day in London? Why are we seeing hundreds of thousands of people marching? saying from the river to the sea, what is this madness? Where you've got young, useful idiots in the West, at university campuses, students who may, might not know better, who are more Palestinian than the Palestinians at this point. I would argue that this is um, a wider malaise within politics. It's, there is, I would call it, a, I don't want to say woke, 
because people don't know what you mean by that and it's not it's an amorphous term that doesn't mean anything yeah so please don't because uh, so, i hate the term as well i i despise it as well <laughs> so what i'm going to reference is illiberal faux progressives or some academics talk about the brahmin left but i find that's a bit <laughs> too geeky and academic people unless you know hinduism and hindu the history of hinduism you don't know what brahmin re references so this illiberal is this illiberal fake progressive left it's very new and we all can begin to identify the kind of things we're talking about there are three people that are responsible for this this the, the politics of power over knowledge rejection of universal or objective truths deconstructionism postmodernism with a splashing of identity politics what we're talking about here is i would say the french rise uh, academically uh, you've got Paul Michel Foucault, he was uh, in the 60s, the 70s, until he died in 84, a French uh, academic philosopher. And he creates he creates a, the rejection of grand narratives on the left. He'd been a communist party member of France. He'd went and worked in Soviet Poland. He'd seen the failure of the Soviet Marxist project. And his response was to reject grand, grand narratives. And you could sum it up with Philip Stokes um, in his book, Philosophy 100, Essential Thinkers. And he sums up Foucault's legacy as, quote, the theme that underlines all of Foucault's work is the relationship between power and knowledge and how the former is used to control the latter. So what he means by that is knowledge is simply the result and the product of power and ideology exercising itself over knowledge. There are no grand narratives. There is no scientific or epistemological truths. This is Foucault. And this becomes very popular in the universities later on. And I think that's toxic. Because at that point, there is there is no objective truth. There is, you know, that's an absurdity. For anyone like myself who believes in the, the empirical method, you know, the university scientific method, you know, it's, it's a deranging thing, but it's very real. And... Jacques Derrida would be the other one. He's the grandfather, the father of deconstructionism, which, how could I describe deconstructionism without being too harsh? I would call it a lazy, a form of lazy literary criticism. Um, putting it simply, it's deconstruction attempts to show that the meaning of work, any work written or spoken, I suppose, is unstable, could have multiple any innumerable alternative meanings. So you just ignore author's intent and you just find all the ways you can pick it apart and put it back together. And this is where you get the politics of um, uh, read, you know, bad assuming dishonest intent, where you don't assume honest intent. Author's intent doesn't matter. You can just read it between any lines that you imagine are there. And he and the deconstruction movement with Derrida takes this literary criticism, which I personally think is lazy, and they apply it much more broadly to society. And I think that's that's become very common. And you hear the politics of the dog whistle, and people, oh, well, you know, that's that's a racist dog whistle. And the author of a particular work says, oh, but I didn't mean it like that, you know. And we just say, oh, well, you know. And you start getting into this lazy unfortunate deranging social media debate of oh he's a racist oh he's a fascist oh he's a communist and it's like 
words don't mean anything anymore. You just assume dishonest intent and you can read anything into it that you want. And then you end up with, I suppose, and, and this is why, of course, you'll notice this sort of this power over knowledge, rejection of universal objective truths, deconstructionism, this postmodernism. Why this is why it's so common in English-speaking countries, because it's in the universities in America and Britain, Canada, I would argue. And it's an attempt by these two French philosophers who were on the left during the Cold War, seeing the failures inherent of the Soviet Marxist project to try and reinvent the left. And they reject the Marxist or social democratic concepts of a grand narrative, um, solidarity based on class consciousness that goes out. The stage of the postmodernist creed of self-reverence, own personal truths, and instead of fighting between class, social classes, you start just having fights between different identity groups, which is where you get Crenshaw. Now, to be fair to Kimberly Crenshaw, she does have a very good point with intersectionality theory, because it's kind of like a Venn diagram, if you want to imagine it like that. It's, I'm gay, say someone's same, say someone is gay and African-American, and they live in Alabama. They can be a victim in more than one way. They can be a victim of racism and homophobia. So you do get intersections of different types of discrimination and victimhood. Kimberly Crenshaw is quite correct about that. But she was writing it as a sort of intersectionality theory as an academic working in law. She was thinking of how would you apply this to the law, which is perfectly reasonable debate to be had. And I'm quite, in some ways, I'm sympathetic to it, as a matter of fact. But you, beyond her, this is now being applied in the humanities <laughs> to just about any subject matter. And this is quite maddening as well. And this is where you see what I would call what, chickens for KFC happening, where you see, you know, L, and I, I say this as a gay person myself, you know, LGBTQ plus for Palestine, we, you know, from the river to the sea. And if these people had ever went to Hamas-controlled Gaza, the only thing they'd notice is a set of hands pushing them off of a very high building and approaching the pavement very fast. But how do you end up with this? Well, you have the focus on how you diff different identity groups, victimhood intersects, and it's a paradigm of us versus them. And the alliances constantly change. There is no interest in class solidarities or anything like that here. So you focus on where your victimhood aligns and that's where your solidarity is on this issue. It's quite thoughtless and lazy as a matter of fact. So this is how you end up, I remember writing a Think Scotland piece about this um, where I tried to outline all of this. And I remember focusing on um, Whoopi Goldberg when she was on The View and she, she, talked, she was talking about the Holocaust and she said, oh, the Holocaust is not a story of racism. It's simply a story of man's inhumanity to man. And your first reaction is, how on earth could someone get to that conclusion? Well, with all the philosophical ideas that I've outlined, it's perfectly possible. Because you're thinking of victim and victimizer in the world of the Venn diagram of victimhood. And there's no overarching truths. There's no grand narratives. It's all just your own personal truth. And you just deconstruct anything you don't like and reinterpret it. So you end up with a situation where you look at you and you're wanting equity. 
which is everyone has the same outcome in life. Everyone has this not equality of opportunity, equity. They have same outcome in life. Everyone's equal, same abilities, same, you know, capacities. Well, a very successful minority, such as, say, Jews, who are a minority but are hyper-successful academically, they do well, they're well-integrated, they're not... This can bashes up against the narrative. So you end up with people like Whoopi Goldberg saying, when she was pushed back on in the view by Anna Navarro, she said, well, you're talking about, you know, <laughs> the Holocaust is obviously a story of racism. And that Whoopi Goldberg says, yeah, but it's two groups of white people because Jews, Jews are white. This is the weird world of accidental racism that enters in when you start getting into this postmodern soup. And I would think what's went wrong are some very profoundly damaging ideas philosophically that have taken deep root in the universities, especially in the humanities and the social sciences that need to be pushed back on very firmly by the left, because there is a sensible left and a legitimate role for the left. And it's the debate around solidarity based on socioeconomic consciousness and the need to redistribute the proceeds of growth <laughs> to create society and ensure equality of opportunity exists. We need to get back to that. And we need to get away from this totem pole of victimhood where Jews are white, so they're never oppressors they're 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 never oppressed they're the oppressors and this is how you end up with jeremy corbyn remember back in the day where he, he was tweeting in support of the mural on the wall there was clear to anyone looking at it was obviously anti-semitic with the big hook nose and the curly hair and the hats and they're playing monopoly on you've got the back of the worker underneath the monopoly team the anti-semitism reeked from it but he didn't see it because to an illiberal full progressive new lefty Jews are whites. Jews are part of the majority. They're victimizers, never victims. And that's why you had people like um, uh, Maggie Chapman in the Scottish Green Party, the day after the worst massacre of Jews since the end of the Holocaust, she talks about, she tweeted out about, um, well, we need, you know, this is a, the problem here is the, Israel's occupation, blah, blah, blah. And it just seemed to me that that was pretty much um, kind of like the parallel would be the 1940s for me when she came out with her tweet. Because, you know, the Jews are being shoved onto the cattle cars. Germans shrug their shoulders and say, well, they shouldn't have undermined the German economy. And the Green Party's reaction seemed to me to be 1,500 Jews have been massacred in Israel. Well, they shouldn't have been occupying land. They are a settler colonizer state. The parallel is there. The anti-Semitism is reeking from it. And of course, the Greens, Scottish Greens are the ultimate champions of this Derrida, Foucault, postmodern soup that's just deranging. And of course, the Greens, to prove it, since 2005, motion two of their party, sorry, 2015, motion two of their party conference, they do not recognize Israel has a right to exist as a Jewish state. They do not believe that Hamas is a, should be a prescribed terrorist organization. They're basically Hamas talking punts, and that's the Scottish Green Party's part policy platform at this point. 
So I'm not surprised that they have such a blind spot. Well, I'd, I'd, I'll just point out that you know Maggie Chapman does uh, refute uh, the <laughs> the sort of accusations that were drawn towards her post that tweet. I think she explained herself in her mindset just uh, just <laughs> just for a balance. But thank you very much for your for your insights uh, this evening, uh, Dean. That was that was I really philosophical at the end there. I enjoyed that. Listen, <laughs> listen to that. Um, it was brilliant. Um, I am. I, I I I probably should should have expanded on that a lot more. But yeah, I've been. I, I think quite a lot about. Because obviously my undergrad was politics, so yeah. my master's was economics. So political philosophy and theories are very much part of. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna I'm gonna re-offer you on the mic uh, an article with Untribal to to expand more about your your ideas and and thoughts that you've you've given us this evening. So I hope you'll take that up with us and. Uh, I absolutely will take that. you up on nice that one. offer. Is there anything else you want to say to our listeners before we go, Dean? I thank you for having me on Untribal, and let us hope that we have an end to this conflagration as soon as possible. Um, let us all call on, I would hope, Hamas to disarm, release their hostages, and join the Oslo One peace process, two states. Here's the... It has to be a two-state solution. <laughs>